And welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Ben. And I'm Sarah. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing, Sarah? Well, we've had a passing at the Scream Scene mansion. Fish, the beta fish, is no longer with us. He lasted a good long while. Uh, We had him for... Two years, almost. Two years, almost, and... Rescued him from a pretty bad situation, so we A, don't know how old he was, and B, with how bad the situation was, we didn't expect him to live longer than a week. Yeah, I really thought that it was a a futile effort uh, when we first got him, but he lasted a good long time. I mean, beta fish live two to five years, right? So... Yeah, they live like two years in the wild and then five years in like prime, optimal, ideal living situations. Yeah, I mean like end of the day, you know, he had a big tank and a lot of food. And that's more than many beta fish in the wild can say. That is true. Lived like a king. Yeah. Well, what are we watching tonight? Tonight's... Does it have anything to do with fish? No. Well, actually, I have no idea. <laughs> okay. I, I it's don't... not like Creature from the Black Lagoon? No, it's not that. I, I don't have much of an idea of what this movie's about, though. Okay. It is called Night Monster. Uh, it's from 1942, and it is a B-movie from Universal Pictures. And it's sort of um, like a perfect example of just how the studio regarded Bela Lugosi and Lionel Atwill... By this point in their careers, both actors are billed at the top of the cast, uh, both in the movie and on the posters. It's starring Bela Lugosi and Lionel Atwell. Um, They're prominently featured in the movie's marketing. Their faces are large on the poster. Uh, However, the two of them actually appear only in very small roles in the picture itself, uh, with Atwell as a murder victim and Lugosi as the butler. Downgraded to murder victim. That's... Quite a fall. Now, we, we've talked about what kind of caused Atwell's fall from grace. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm kind of curious, like, I know that he was kind of blacklisted in Hollywood, but how much of that had kind of leaked out to the public? Uh, there was some coverage in the press, um, certainly, because the press loves that shit. I think very um, handled a lot in, like, euphemisms. You know, when you read... Um, the news articles of the time, they're very vague. Mm-hmm. It's like, actor busted in illicit... Christmas porn ring. No, it's more like actor busted in illicit film ring. Like, that's kind of language, right? Sure, sure. Um, so, you know, I, I'm not sure, especially at this point, mm. I'm not sure. Uh, I think he had been indicted by this point. You know, he, he had this blacklist against him. But I think there was still this idea that, you know, similarly with Lugosi, there was value to his name, at least in the context of horror movies as Mm -hmm. a marketing thing, right? The same way that there's like, you know, dozens of movies where uh, if they can get, uh, you know, produced by Wes Craven or produced by Rob Zombie or whatever, like whoever's hot in horror right now, and then you just slap that shit on there and it's like... (laughs) Oh, from executive producer James Wan. And it's like, oh, yeah, he, like, glanced at the script one day over coffee, right? But it's like you can add that cachet or prestige to a project. Okay. I just, 
know how controversial Lionel Atwell's whole situation would be. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm just also surprised that they would use his name so prominently given, like, potential backlash from audiences. Yeah, it's it's sort of interesting, right? Because they felt like, you know, they could still give him roles, Mm -hmm. but they weren't going to give him big roles. They were going to give him little roles. And then on top of that, they still felt like they could use his name to market movies. And what that kind of suggests to me is, like, that maybe there wasn't so much a fear of what the audience would think, or at least that there was an idea that, you know, because you don't see him after a certain point in many, like, mainstream movies anymore. Like, you have to remember that, like, you know, yeah, we saw him in a lot of horror in 1933, right? Yeah, But then we didn't really, yeah, um, then we didn't really see him again until, like, 1939, right? He had a long stretch where he did just, like, straight drama roles, and, like, he was really on his way up in terms of the type of movies he was doing. And, you know, then he kind of gets kicked back down into this horror uh, gutter, as it were. So I feel like, you know, there was this idea that, well, we can't put him in mainstream movies. We can put him in horror because horror fans, like, it's it's a gutter, right? Because it's B-movies and who cares? And within that market, his name has enough cachet still, right? Mm-hmm. There are people who are like, oh, Lionel Atwell, he's so great. And there's also the fact that Atwell felt like the thing where he was just getting these small roles was really the film studios themselves punishing him or being disgusted with him, right? This idea of like, well, we don't, we're not going to give you a big role. Like that the, the producers themselves felt uh, offended or whatever by what he had done mm-hmm. um, rather than just being afraid of what audiences would think. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting that like they, they were willing to give him only small roles, but they were still willing to use his name. Um, but, of course, Lugosi had been like that with the studio for a long time by now. Yeah, but they have different situations, right? Lugosi wasn't busted for Christmas porn-watching extravaganza. Yeah, he hadn't been um, brought down in the public eye the way that Atwell had, for yeah. sure. Yeah, and I mean, like, Lugosi has his problems, but a big part of why studios weren't really willing to work with him was the risk because of being an addict and also just kind of being difficult. Yeah, meanwhile, Atwell, I think the issue was that he was a convict by this point, like that, that he had, you know, been indicted. So yeah. Anyways, it's, Sorry. it's all sort of, it's all sort of respectability politics at the end of the day, right? Mm-hmm. With both men. So night monster was written by Clarence Upson young, who was 47 years old. So uh, not very young. No, maybe depending on your perspective. Yeah. He was 47 when this film was made. Young's career consisted basically of writing B movies, almost entirely westerns, uh, though he did put out a few thrillers and horror flicks like this one uh, during the 1940s. His career stretched from the 30s to the 60s, and basically the rest of the time he was writing westerns, uh, all of which are minor B-movie westerns. Work is work. Mm -hmm. Uh, Similarly, the director, Ford Beebe, specialized in B-movies, primarily westerns and action serials. He was born in 1888, in Grand Rapids, Michigan, and he started out as a copywriter for an advertising firm. (laughs) Don Draper over here. (laughs) Probably more like, um, what's the, what's the guy, uh, is it Ken? Who's the guy who, like, is writing the novel on the sly? Kevin Cosgrove? Ken Ken Cosgrove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, the guy from L.A. Noir. Yeah. Anyways, uh, Ford B became a film writer 
1916, pretty much immediately writing westerns. Uh, he started directing after a while, um, initially because one of the directors of a film he had written fell ill, uh, so he just, like, stepped in. No, nah, man, this is a Don Draper situation. <laughs> Getting hired because the person's drunk or whatever. For his directing career, he stuck primarily uh, to westerns, uh, which were his preferred genre. He described them once in an interview as the bread and butter of the motion picture industry. He sort of dropped off uh, writing to just focus on the directing. Uh, he became respected for his work in serials, uh, becoming known as, quote, an expert at making something out of nothing, end quote. Uh, he directed the Jungle Jim serial, the second and third Flash Gordon serials, the first Green Hornet serial, and the entirety of the Bomba the Jungle Boy series of movies based on the series of children's novels. Oof. We have those, don't we? Yes, From we do. From your grandfather. Uh, yes, correct. So, in terms of the rest of the cast, um, Ralph Morgan has a starring role in this movie. We last saw Ralph Morgan as the villain, I guess you could say, in Condemned to Live, which is one of the lowest-ranking movies on the list. I don't uh, he, remember. He was a doctor. Oh, oh right. I'm condemned was... to live because my mom was bit by a vampire when she, by a bat, when she was pregnant with me. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he's the village doctor who secretly, like, has the symptoms of vampirism in that he has to, like, kill people by sucking their blood. But there's nothing magical going on, and it was caused because his mom was in Africa when she was pregnant and got bit by a bat. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, and then he, like, jumps into a cliff, at, like, at the end of the movie. Yeah, takes his own life, basically. It's not very good. Yeah, so that was nine years ago. Uh, so by now, he was 59 years old. Great time. Uh, he was one of the founding members of the Screen Actors Guild in 1933, uh, and had served as the president of SAG until 1940. This period in his career, the 1940s, he was appearing in a lot of B-movies and serials. His kind of glory days were behind him. <laughs> Imagine Condemned to Live being lumped into your glory days. I mean, I think... Sorry. Condemned to Live is sort of the equivalent of, like, you know, when... When your best friend from college needs you to fill in a part. No, I, I was more trying to say, like, you know, when um, you see, like, a really garbage, you know, direct-to-streaming movie, and it's like, Ryan Reynolds, like, what are you doing in this? Like, kind of thing. I feel like Condemned to Live was kind of that. But now it's like, nah, dude, it's over. <laughs> Uh, his co-star in this film is 33-year-old Irene Harvey. Uh, she was a Los Angeles native and protege of English stage actress Emma Dunn. Harvey made her screen debut in 1933, uh, initially at MGM, appearing in Lionel Barrymore movies. She moved to Universal in 1936, and by 1940 they had moved her down to B Pictures. Oof. Um, in 1943, so a year after this, she was seriously injured in a car crash and didn't return to acting until 1948. She appeared in guest roles on television through the 50s and 60s and retired from acting in 1981. Okay. Another person in the cast uh, that you might recognize is Faye Helm. We last saw her as Jenny, the first victim of The Wolfman. Oh, Yeah. Yeah. Night Monster is the second of four Universal Horror films that she appeared in through the 1940s. 
Another member of the cast with sort of an interesting story behind them is Nils Aster, who plays Agar Singh, uh, who is a Sikh mystic. The actor is not Indian. He is uh, Swedish, actually. I was going to say with a name like Nils. Yeah, you know, about as far from Indian as you can get, basically. Yeah. So Aster was the son of unwed Swedish parents uh, born in Denmark, in 1897 that was like a pretty common move back then i guess in sweden was like not getting married no going across the border to denmark to give birth to your out of wedlock child and then coming back to sweden married which is what his parents did oh okay he started acting as a young man astor was gay and in 1916, he appeared in his first film, The Wings, uh, which was based on the novel Mikhail. Um, it's a gay-themed love story and was later remade in the 1920s by Carl Theodore Dreyer. That's his, cool. Yeah. His parents were deeply religious Lutherans, uh, so he remained closeted about his sexuality, uh, though he had affairs with directors and writers in the Swedish film industry. Between 1918 and 1926, he appeared in a large number of Swedish, Danish, and German films. In 1927, he left for Hollywood and became uh, very renowned and a very big star because of his good looks. He was friends with Greta Garbo because they were both Swedish... in Hollywood. Yeah, they were both Swedish stars who were new to America. Uh, So it was kind of like, oh, well, we can hang out. Um, he was actually called the male Greta Garbo because he was seen as being, like, as good-looking as she was. <laughs> Astor actually proposed marriage to Garbo so that he could hide his sexual orientation, uh, but she refused. Yeah, she she doesn't have to be a beard. <laughs> um, with the coming of sound, uh, Astor's star decreased somewhat. Uh, he worked hard to try and lose his accent, Um, but he was frequently cast as foreigners Mm. uh, because of it. Um, Didn't really matter what kind of foreigner. We've kind of seen that with, like, Bella Lugosi. Yeah. He married Vivian Duncan in 1930 that produced uh, a single daughter. They divorced in 1932. He's perhaps best remembered today for playing the title role in 1933's The Bitter Tea of General Yin, uh, where he was the romantic interest of Barbara Stanwyck. His character was Chinese, uh, so the film was banned after the enforcement of the code. Mm. In 1935, he was blacklisted uh, due to an alleged breach of contract and left Hollywood to continue his career in England. Uh, He made several films over there and then returned to Hollywood in 1940, but his career was never really the same again, uh, consisting mostly of small roles in low-budget films. He tried to get a new start in television in the 1950s, but it didn't really go anywhere, and he returned to Sweden nearly destitute in 1958. Uh, He made four more films before retiring from acting to become a painter in 1963. That's cool. The film's cinematography is by Charles Van Enger, uh, who's best known for his collaborations with Ernst Lubitsch in the silent era. He shot uh, films like Last of the Mohicans in 1920, Salome in 1922, Phantom of the Opera in 1925. Oh, dang. Life of Riley in 1927, and many, many more. Uh, Like many of the people involved in Night Monster, by 1942, he was kind of seen as a has-been and was relegated to making B-movies. Those are some big names under his belt, though. Mm Mm-hmm. Like Phantom of the Opera, dang. So, Night Monster was released on October 20th, 1942. Ooh, right right near Halloween. Yeah. 
The New York Times called it tedious. <laughs> no. But Alfred Hitchcock praised the film and its director in particular for the speed and efficiency of its production. Oh, no. That's, that's a backhanded compliment. <laughs> well, how are we watching this speedy, tedious horror film? Uh, so Night Monster is available on DVD as part of the Universal Horror Classic Movie Archive. Classic movie. Yeah, it's the same box set that contains uh, such universal classic horror movies as Horror Island, the 1941 version of The Black Cat, Man-Made Monster, basically everything that they couldn't like lump in with their like Dracula or Frankenstein or Wolfman sets just gets lumped into this set. Sure. I guess it's classic in the sense that it's old. Yep. It's, it's a marketing term. Yeah. Okay. Well, folks, if you'd like to watch along, find a copy of that DVD. Otherwise, you're out of luck. We have such luck to be able to watch this movie. Yep. Yep. Looking real forward to it. Hey, uh, Alfred Hitchcock liked it. Uh, did he? That's a backhand compliment. Not like, so bad it's good kind of compliment, you know? Anyways... We will be back after this musical break to discuss Night Monster from 1942, directed by... Ford Beeb. Ford Beeb. <laughs> what? Ford Beeb. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Night Monster from 1942, directed by Ford Beeb. Ben, was this good? Yeah, that's where I'm at too, Sarah. I don't know if this movie was terrible or amazing. At the very least, it's buck wild. Yes. As Chris Sims would say. This movie needs to be seen to be believed. believed. This, oh my god. This movie is like... <laughs> definitely, like, if it's bad, it's so bad it's good. It's, like, it's definitely, like, in that category. Yeah, it's it's certainly, like, just one of those movies that leaves you going, like, what the fuck is this? But you're having, like, a really good time, for the most part, as you watch it. Yes. Before we go into synopsis, though, I do just want to give a heads up. It's a film from the 40s, so, you know, when we go into these movies... You kind of expect there's going to be a level of sexism, racism, isms, you mm -hmm. know? Obviously, you know, we have a Swedish man playing a Hindu character, so there's like... I mean, to be honest, like, he's wearing a turban, he should be Sikh, not Hindu. They just call him Hindu in the dialogue because Americans don't know what the fucking difference is. Well, there we go. Like, there's even... It's not like... The movie's racist is what Sarah's trying to say. Yes. We knew that going in. Yeah. But if you're going in to watch this movie, which I, I would recommend you watch Night Monster, it's kind of crazy, but just be aware that there is quite a bit of sexism in the movie. Um, normally it's kind of like, you know, whatever, move on with the movie, but there's a couple points where there's basically a dude bro who just needs, like, Axe cologne spray and a popped collar who is, like, overly friendly 
with some of the female characters. His main motivation is he's trying to rape every female character in the movie, and he's not, like, the villain. Mm -hmm. That's not, like, the plot of the movie. That's just, like, a character trait of his, the way that, like, another character might really enjoy chess, or another character might have, like, a stutter. So I just want to give that as a heads up, because I didn't know that going in, and it did kind of disrupt the movie viewing experience, but you kind of just you know, get pulled along for the ride. So just not so much a trigger warning, but maybe a content warning. It's it's really quite strange. It's it's like the movie I would say is definitely very sexist, but it's sexist in like a way that um the right word for it might be like microaggressions. Like mm-hmm. this isn't a movie where like the plot of the movie is women are bad or something. Like it's not that overt. It's just that like every female character is treated terribly by everyone in the movie and that's not like the point of the movie, like, that's just a thing that happens. But let's, let's talk about the movie. Yeah. What is it about? So this is, I guess, technically speaking, best described as an old Dark House movie. Yes. Ergo, the cast is very large. There's a lot of people in this movie. And this movie just throws you into the deep end right at the start. It doesn't try to, like, ease you in or explain what the hell's going on. It just throws you in. So our old dark house in this case is a mansion called Ingston Towers. And um, it is, I don't know where it's supposed to be. It's by a village called Hillsdale, which means the village might as well just be called Village. And it's apparently like by like swamps that like just massive horror movie amounts of fog roll off of. Tons of frogs. Yes, and tons of croaking frogs that are, um, you know, a really obviously looped post-production library sound effect. And yet, the movie doesn't make, like, a very good effort at hiding that it was shot, you know, in Southern California. This is a, like, area where fog rolls in from the swamps onto, like, desert roads. Yeah. Um, Also... I mean, maybe it's just because we've been watching so many B-movies, but these are, you will have seen these sets before. Yeah, a lot of these sets for the house have come from other movies. We're starting to get really familiar with the layout of this fictional house. Yeah. Um, The movie, I will say, does a really good job of, like, looking better than its budget. Mm -hmm. But there are telltale signs of that low budget. The first one right off the bat occurs with the opening credits, which are exactly the opening credits of The Wolfman, right down to the, like, footage used and the music, uh, just with new credits put on top. Oh, I thought the music was Ghost oh, of you're Frankenstein. Right. Yes. The whole movie reuses music from Ghost of Frankenstein all the way through, um, and it has that, like, B-movie problem of just not integrating the music very well, so it just starts and, and stops... Stop. Even the sound effects do this. Yeah, I'll I'll get to that. So, anyways, the Inkston Towers are inhabited by Margaret Inkston, who's played by Faye Helm. And uh, she has a very strange relationship with the housekeeper, Sarah Judd, played by Doris Lloyd. It feels like we've been dropped immediately into the middle of a gothic romance novel. Because um, Margaret is a character who's doubting her sanity... There's strange things going on in the house that she doesn't know about, and all of her attempts to either get away from the house or call for help or try to ascertain, like, what the hell's going on are all getting, like, ludicrously gaslit by the housekeeper, you know, who just basically responds to anything Margaret says with, go to your room, 
Margaret is convinced that either she's insane or everyone else in the house is. So she has called for a psychiatrist to come in from out of town named Dr. Harper. And Sarah Judd tries to persuade her that, like, you should call that off because your brother, who's the master of the house, um, has already called in a bunch of doctors for a completely unrelated purpose. Now, Margaret's brother is Kurt Angston, and he's played by Ralph Morgan. Mm -hmm. Who's the guy from Condemned to Live? That's right. Other people who work and live in this house include Bella Lugosi, who plays Rolf, or Ralph. It's spelt Rolf in the credits, but definitely everyone says Ralph. Uh, And he's the butler, and he's just wasted in that role. Um, There's also Nils Aster as Agar Singh, who is just like a... A mystic. A hypnotist, a mentalist, who's just hanging around the house, I guess. We find out why he's there later. Uh, There's also Laurie... Uh, who is um, the driver. He's the chauffeur. And he's the, the, like, dude bro character that Sarah was talking about earlier. And he is played by Leif Erikson, and he is cartoonish. Mm-hmm. Like, he talks like like a Bronx gangster and just basically is either, like, tough guy threatening every man in the movie and, like, leering and, like, catcalling every woman in the movie. Like, it's... He's... It's ridiculous. It, yeah, it's... Finally, no, not finally, there's Tork, who is, like, basically, like, the this... gatekeeper? He's the gatekeeper, and he's also, like, a weird hunchback guy. And that's never really... He's never really integrated into the story. He just lets people into or out of the house. And he's flavoring. Yeah, he's just there to tell you this is a horror movie mansion. Um, and finally, there is Millie, who is the maid. And Millie has decided she has had just about enough of this bullshit. And she's going to quit. She's played by an actress named Janet Shaw. And I get the impression that Janet Shaw thought, like, this was going to be her big shot. Because she gives Millie a ton of personality. Millie is, like, the most 1940s-ass woman, like, ever. In terms of the amount of, like, (laughs) sass she has. And, like, really everyone in this movie talks with just an insane amount of 1940s slang. She wants to get back into town and leave this creepy old mansion alone. Uh, So Lori offers to drive her into town. He drives her, like, some of the way, and then, like, parks the car to try and rape her. Uh, She gets away. Also, like, the whole movie, I was like, how did Lori get past the code? Yeah. Anyways, she gets away. Maybe because he dies? uh, Yeah, and he also never succeeds at anything, right? Like, there's never... he, He paws at people, but he never quite gets there, right? Yeah. Anyways, she escapes and runs away and runs into, you know, Bronson Canyon. Um, she Yes, she <laughs> runs into Bronson Canyon and is met by a villager from Hillsdale who has a carriage with horses. Listen, not everyone has one percenter money to have a car. It's 1942. <laughs> Listen, he's a farmer. He got hurt real bad with the Great Depression. Okay. His name is Jeb. His name is Jeb. That is very true. <laughs> Jeb brings Millie back into the village. And we find out that, like, suspicious things have been going on by the old Inkston place. Uh, she meets up with the village sheriff, Cap Beggs. Uh, who is the police captain, and he's like a lazy old man. And she goes to him and basically explains how she's pretty sure that um, this doctor was killed 
uh, by the Inkstons sometime previously. However, apparently his body was discovered um, like in the swamps off the Inkston property, and therefore the law's hands are tied. There's nothing they can do to in- <laughs> investigate the Inkstons. It wasn't on their property after all. Time for the Batman to swing in. <laughs> so this doctor who was killed, he was strangled to death. Uh, but there was blood found at the scene, even though, like, the doctor wasn't stabbed or anything. They figure he fought his attacker, and that's where the blood came from. So Millie, when she left, was in such a hurry that she left all her things back at the Ingston place. So she gets Jeb to drive her back so she can collect her things. When she arrives, um, basically she's uh, gaslit by a bunch of people. And Torque tells Jeb that uh, she's changed her mind and she's going to stay the night. Jeb's like, that's... All kinds of messed up, but all right. And goes back into town to tell Cap about all the weird goings on. And just like seconds later, Millie like goes out with her stuff. And Torque's like, oh yeah, he left without you. So she ends up trying to like walk back home through the Moors, a.k.a. Bronson Canyon with about 20 like million parts, you know, (laughs) Like, so much dry ice. Yes, with, with just an overwhelming amount of dry ice pumped into it. And, like, something steps out of, like, a door in the middle of nowhere and kills her. Now, one thing that Ben kind of skipped and kind of summarized with um, strange goings-on is there have been rumors of a strange creature in the swamps that when it appears, it's super foggy and frogs stop croaking. So, you know something's wrong when the frogs suddenly, like, the sound effects with the frogs, the needle gets pulled up, you know the monster's coming, the night monster, as it were, and then you know that the murder has happened after the screams, and the needle drops back onto the frogs. The uh, scream of Millie is heard by Dr. Harper. She's on her way to meet, um, it's a surprise that she's a she, by the way. Uh, she's on her way to uh, meet uh, with Margaret, who summoned her, but her car is broken down. So she ends up hitching a ride with this guy named Dick Baldwin. Dick Baldwin is a friend of Kurt Ingston's, and Dick Baldwin is played... (laughs) Sarah... Sorry, I feel like there's so many jokes you could make, both about Dick and about the Baldwins. Yes, and let's let's restrain ourselves, shall we? There's a lot to get through here. Yes. So Dick Baldwin is played by an actor named Don Porter, who I can't tell you much more about other than he was an actor in some movies around this time. Dick Baldwin is a writer of, like, murder mystery, gory, horror pulp stories, uh, a fact that is never really important uh, to anything. Basically, the staff makes every attempt to try and get Harper to leave. Um, And not see Margaret at all. Yes, like, oh, she doesn't want to see you. She changed her mind. There's no use talking to her. You should probably just leave. They just try to gaslight the fuck out of her. Everyone in this movie tries to gaslight every woman in this movie at least once. And she's like, no, I think I won't do that. Because, like, she's a psychiatrist who's been hired to do a job. And, like, maybe she should see her patient. So, she has arrived just about at the same time as the three other doctors that uh, Kurt Ingston has brought to the house. And now... And that's who Laurie was picking up. Yes. Now is the time to explain Kurt Ingston. So he's played by Ralph Morgan, and he is like an invalid. 
Um, he's wrapped up in like a blanket, so we can't see exactly what's wrong with him. But we learn that the three doctors he has summoned, Doctors King, Timmons, and Phipps, are the doctors who performed some surgery on him of some kind some time ago, and it went horribly wrong. It was m repeated multiple times that, like, they did everything medical science could do for this guy, <laughs> and that, like, all their great efforts of modern medical science, like, left him, like, a twisted shell of a man. Um, yeah, they used these actual words. Multiple times. So, in addition to being sexist and racist, it's also ableist. Yeah, I'm also going to get to, like, how poorly this movie treats people with mental illness later. Oh, yeah, but... it's ableist in all yeah. things. Um, I mean, but, you know, this is a horror movie. I, I expect to hear languages like Twisted Shell of a Man and, you know, it, he was beyond the reach of science and stuff like that. That's par for the course. Yeah. I just want to put a pin in that now. Okay, okay, cool. It is for... something I wanted to talk about during the discussion. Yeah, we can... We, we are currently in the synopsis Yeah, we phase. need to get through some shit. We, the plot has not arrived yet. So, anyways, <laughs> these three doctors are played by Lionel Atwell, uh, Frank Riker, and Francis Pierlo. So, Inkston brings them all to dinner. What Inkston has brought them to see is his friend, Agar Singh, who I have to, like, stop and go oh. into detail on this one, because this was where the movie went from wild to buck wild. He is a yoga instructor mentalist. He's a yogi, which is not the same thing as a yoga okay. instructor. Like, Agar Singh is a yogi and a mystic and a mentalist, and he goes into this speech about how modern science admits that all matter is composed of a single cosmic substance, and the only thing that makes matter different is, like, the frequency at which it vibrates. Which is kind of true, but is simplified to such an insane degree that it's basically not true. Like, yes, all matter's composed of atoms, I guess, that are, like, fundamentally the same at, like, the subatomic level, and I guess, like, the difference between solid, liquid, and gas is the speed that they vibrate at, but... Pretty much everything else you just said was nonsense. But apparently modern science agrees with him on that point. However, what the ancient yogi mystics have known for thousands of years is that you can change any matter into any other type of matter by changing the frequency at which it vibrates, and you can do that through sheer willpower. And I'm sitting here like, wow, so Kurt Ingston and Gwyneth Paltrow see the same, like, healthcare professionals. Ooh. Yeah, so he it's through the power of your mind yes. that you can create and manipulate matter. Yeah, so the idea here is that um, Ingston is trying to tell the docs that he believes this power can be used to, like, restore lost tissue to mm -hmm. people like him who have suffered great accidents. And to you know, like Doctor Strange. Right. And to prove <laughs> this to them, he has Singh put on a demonstration where he summons a skeleton from a tomb in Sicily that's <laughs> holding a box that's bleeding, and inside there is a blood ruby and an ancient Greek curse of death. <laughs> and, oh boy. So, <laughs> people scream, and when that happens, it breaks Agar Singh's concentration, and when he breaks concentration, it all disappears. Um, but... 
the blood that was dripping from the box stays behind there. And when he is asked why, the explanation is there are parts of this process that I can't tell you because they're secrets from being a yogi. You'd have to be a yogi to know, which is a hilarious way for a script to say, shut the fuck up. Don't ask any (laughs) questions. Um, so this is pretty incredible. Um, Margaret finally gets a chance to speak with Dr. Harper alone and is like, Hey, I think maybe I'm crazy. Because if I'm not crazy, some crazy shit is going on in this house. And Dr. Harper's like, you know, some crazy shit has been going on in this house, so maybe you aren't crazy. Um, There's a lot of the usual old dark house running around, especially with all the servants trying to keep all of the good guy characters, like, apart from one another as much as possible. Lowry tries to make a move. Lowry? Lowry. Lori. Lori. His name is spelt Lowry. Um, but they say Lori. Yes. Lori tries to make a move on Harper, um, but she gets basically rescued because she's going to become the love interest of Dick Baldwin. Um, she's functionally the protagonist of this movie in terms of like plot structure, but she's a woman and the movie's not great with women. Um, so Dick's there to also exist and basically shove her out of scenes whenever it would be, like, inappropriate for a woman to get involved. Like, whenever anything exciting happens. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, Jeb has gone down to Cat Bags and been like, Hey, <laughs> all this weird oh, fucking shit. I can't believe he was named Jeb. All this weird shit is happening. And, like, Millie wouldn't have disappeared like that. She wouldn't have spent the day in the house. Jeb explains this to Cap. And Cap's like, sure, okay. So then he's like, all right, that is some suspicious nonsense. Let's go out and check. And that's when they find Millie's dead body in the swamp, all strangled with a puddle of blood next to it, and a bunch of footprints that are fucking gigantic. Yes. And this is the point where lazy-ass Cat Beggs, who's basically dismissed everyone in this movie's attempts to try and get the law involved with, like, eh, I don't really feel like it, suddenly becomes a badass. Yeah. Because now there is an actual confirmed crime and he's a crotchety old man who won't take guff from nobody. So that instantly made him my favorite character. So he tells Jeb like, yeah, get out of here. Uh, and he heads over to the house alone. He gets there and everyone tries to gaslight him into leaving. And like, you know, the, the maid, they're not the maid, the housekeeper's all like, yes, just leave, we don't need you here, and, you know, people are trying to explain to him, like, yeah, you know, nothing's wrong or whatever, and he's just like, shut up, you're gonna answer my questions, and, like, I really get, the movie doesn't say this, I really get the feeling that Laurie's an ex-con, just from the way he interacts with Cap, um, but Cap, like, questions him, and is like, you're not going anywhere, because you probably killed Millie, because we know from Jeb that, like, you tried to put the moves on her earlier, and, Basically, Cap puts, like, the old nobody leave the house, you're all suspects move on everybody. And basically just, like, pulls a gun on anyone who tries to give them sass and tells them to shut up. Um, My favorite part of this movie is when Bela Lugosi comes over to Cap and gives him, like, the most standard dialogue that I've heard in a million old Dark House movies when the cops show up and try to see what's going on, which is like, can't this investigation wait till morning? And Cap replies, it can, but it ain't. (laughs) <laughs> Which I was like, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Anyways, it's about this time that Dr. King dies. Yes. Uh, that was Lionel Atwell's character. He is strangled, and there's a puddle of blood nearby. So now that there's been a murder, 
you know, nobody leaves, obviously. Cap's trying to get to the bottom of things. Uh, it's clear that Margaret knows more than she's letting on, but Judd keeps interfering with Harper and Baldwin's attempts to get at her. We don't know who the murderer is, but it's definitely not Kurt Ingston, uh, you know, because the people who are dying aren't all people he swore revenge against or anything like that. He's an invalid. There's no way he could do it. They stay the night, uh, and during the night, Timmons is murdered too, which they find out about in the morning. You know, more investigations going on. There's a lot of uh, running about, old Dark House style. Uh, and then, of course, Phipps is murdered. Mm-hmm. Because, like, come on. Long story short, the three doctors get killed off at different times, but all still strangled and with a puddle of blood. And eventually, they get word out of Margaret. Yeah, so Harper and Baldwin finally get Margaret alone and get her to talk. And she's like, yeah, it's, it's totes my brother which is why I think I'm crazy, because there's no possible way he could be doing it. And that's when Harper's like, you know, when I was on my way here, I definitely heard a scream and definitely saw Kurt Ingston walking across the moors. So actually, I think you're not crazy. And Baldwin's like, cool, he's actually faking being paralyzed, and he's been killing everyone this whole time. So him and Cap go over to Kurt's room, and are like, hey, you've been faking being paralyzed this whole time. And Kurt's like, you're right. I have been faking being paralyzed. And he takes off his prosthetic arms and, like, removes the bed sheets to reveal that he has no arms or legs. He's not paralyzed. He's just, you know, limbless. So he's like, yeah, I definitely can't be the murderer. And so Cap gets all angry at Baldwin to the point where he kind of almost suspects Baldwin. And that's when Laurie dies. Uh, He's been strangled. And there's also a puddle of blood. And this time they think to, like, follow it into, like, a series of trapdoors and back passages that all connect all the various puddles of blood. Um, but Singh's been hinting this whole time that he knows who the murderer is, too. He's just um, waiting to get enough evidence. Right. Cap has been trying to arrest Singh because Singh's, like, a suspicious, weird magician and also foreign. So Cap is great in all aspects except this. Yeah. Um, I do like that he at least wants to arrest someone. Yes. So meanwhile, Harper is getting the heck out of this mansion. Margaret will not go with her. And Sarah Judd comes in to be like, what are you doing? Yeah, you're, you're not, not allowed leaving. to leave the house. And so Margaret then okay. goes like full like Jane Eyre in Margaret's a way. whole rationale is that she can't leave because she won't abandon her brother, even mm-hmm. though she knows her brother's evil. She also knows that, like, everyone in the house is evil. Sarah Judd's whole deal is revealed to be that, like, she was in love with Kurt this whole time. Like, there's really, like, a lot of bizarro gothic horror backstory yeah, shit going on here. Someone watched the old dark house. Right. And Margaret comes to the conclusion of, we are all, like, evil and cursed and shit. So in order to cleanse everything, I'm just going to burn the whole house down with all of us in it. And Sarah's like, that's crazy. And Margaret basically fights her to keep her in the house long enough to burn to death. Baldwin and Harper, GTFO, like you do when the house is on fire. And um, the, the, the crazy thing is they're running across the moors and then the frogs stop croaking. <laughs> and they're going across this, like, footbridge over, like, a little stream or something, and it's really credibly built because Harper falls through, like, the bottom of it. Yeah. And as Baldwin's trying to help her up, we see that the, like, very massively footed person walking across the moors towards them is Kurt Ingston! And Ingston attacks Baldwin and um, seems to choke him out, and he's coming for Harper, and then he gets shot in the back. And dies. And who rescued them? 
It was Sing. And Cap shows up and is like, wait, what? And Sing's like, I just killed Inkston. And Cap's like, I knew it was you the whole time. And Sing's like, no, 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 no. It was Inkston the whole time. I just rescued everyone. He's like, but Inkston doesn't have legs. Were they mechanical legs? And Sing's like, no. <laughs> I trained him in my mental powers that I explained about earlier, which aren't a hoax, but are actually real. And he, like, mental image transmuted matter his own legs and arms and Cap's like I don't believe it and he's like watch and then he sees the legs and arms disappear because Inkston's dead now and isn't constraining Cap's like well nope still don't believe it and uh, the house fucking burns down because that's what happens to gothic mansions and uh, fuck man that's the end yeah it's bonkers it's a bonkers movie like it's the script is probably bad by any, like, objective <laughs> standards, right? Like, the plot is absurd. The characters are all idiots. The dialogue is attempting to be quirky and charming in, like, a 40s way so hard that it's occasionally hard to understand what the characters are trying to say. Like, I imagine watching this now is what watching, like, Joss Whedon stuff is going to be like for people <laughs> in 50 years, where, like, all the, like, cute, quirky slang stuff is going to be like, what the fuck are these people even saying? Um, well, there's... That, but then there's also characters who go, like, really heavy into, like, gothic sentences. Yes. Everyone in this movie is from a different fucking genre. Because there are people who talk like they walked out of Jane Eyre. There are people who talk like they're in a New York gangster movie. There are people who talk like they're small town hicks. There are people who talk like they're wisecracking, like, 40s comedy characters, even though there are no comic relief characters in this movie. Maybe Jeb. Like, he's, honestly, he's kind of a good guy. Not bright, but a good guy. Like, everyone in this movie talks like a totally different stereotype who have all been just thrown into a movie. It's like an episode of The Simpsons up in here. <laughs> the other thing is the story is constructed in a way that I think is deliberately making it hard to follow to try and prolong the mystery. Because, honestly, the, like, reveal that it's Inkston is the most obvious answer ever. To the point where the only other time that Baldwin's profession as a pulp writer comes up is when the cat, like, people are like, who do you think is the murderer? And he's like, well, it would be the person we least expect, which would be you, Kurt. Yeah. And then they're like, well, that's no way that could happen. So moving on. No way. <laughs> yeah. Like. So, I think the fact that the story, like, starts by just throwing you into the house, like, because I think the natural way for this story to be structured would be you start with Harper, because she's yeah. the one who's new to the situation. But we um, literally start with Sarah Judd wiping, like, one of the spots of blood. Oh, yeah. And, um, Margaret being, like, insane, like, I, to the point where I was like, what is going on? Who's saying what? Yeah. What is happening? I will just stop to explain the puddles of blood because it is a random weird detail that even the movie doesn't really care all that much about. Uh, the puddles of blood are explained at the end when um, Inkston's legs disappear as basically being the same thing as the leftover blood from the skeleton where there's just some mysterious shit about this stuff that you just can't understand and Inkston wasn't very good at it. Yeah. Like, that's that's the explanation. Yeah. For... So he was just leaving blood behind. <laughs> yeah, with all of his victims. Um... <laughs> Which they could test and tell was human blood, but not whose. Well, because it's 1942, Sarah. They don't have DNA testing. Yeah, just mop it up. It's gross. <laughs> I'm going to follow my hunch. 
Um, uh, though, like, to your point, yeah, this movie just moves at a breakneck speed. Yes. Um, before the break, you mentioned that, like, one reviewer was like, this movie's tedious. It's anything but. Like, if yeah. there's anything this movie isn't, it's tedious. Like, that's, if anything, the thing I like most about this movie compared to, like, the very similar parade of B-movie, mad scientist, old dark house films we've gotten lately is stuff fucking happens in this one. Like People die. Yeah, the cast, the giant cast, is put to good use. Four of them are alive at the end. Out everyone of like else, 11, 12? Yeah, everyone else is dead. If you didn't see them die on screen, they definitely died in that fire. Like, yeah. Bela Lugosi, you do not see him die on screen. It's just assumed he went up in the fire. Um, there are murders, there's violence, there's plot instead of the illusion of plot. Um, the other thing about this movie, even though the script is bananas... The direction is mm-hmm. inspired. The cinematography is fantastic. The performances are good, even. The set design? Yeah, I mean, it's the same old dark house we've seen a million times, but, like, it's pretty good. Yeah, like, they're doing what they can with these same old sets. Yeah, but There's like, lighting really, in this fucking movie. Yeah, the lighting and the amount of fog everywhere, like, it literally, like, looks like a door appears out of nowhere the way that they use the fog. And when the house is being lit up on fire, Margaret is, like, center frame, holding back Sarah, and is saying something like, we deserve to go up in flames. And then, like, billowing smoke fills the room in, like, a really neat way. Like it's, the, it's very awesome. Like the dinosaur thing in Fantasia. Oh, yeah. It's For exactly the ellipses. Like, yeah, it's exactly like that. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of creative stuff like that in this movie. There's the murder of one of the doctors where it's just the big shadow that comes over the entire wall until it fills the entire room. There's a lot of creative stuff going on here. There's a lot of good framing. Um, a lot of the shots and the way the movie's edited feels way more modern than a lot of the films we've been getting lately. Like, it feels like a big step forward in the use of cinematography to depict a horror story, which is kind of ironic given that the script is basically every hoary old cliche in the book. It's it's just, I was so impressed with how creative, how creatively made this was and how they really tried to, like, overcome the shortcomings of their budget mm-hmm. and, you know, yeah, put some fucking lighting into the movie, do some cool stuff with shadows, do some cool stuff with... Uh, you know, uh, blinds and, and fireplaces and, and all kinds of stuff. And even with the sound effects, like, it, I, I think they were a little poorly executed, and same with the music a bit, but, like, they were trying to go for something. Yeah, there's a neat idea there of, like, everything going silent as the monster approaches, rather than, like... Yeah, Yeah, bombarding you with noise and stuff, right? Like, the other thing about this movie is, like, there's a shocking amount of on-screen gore. Yeah. And the clever, the I almost feel like the only way they get away with it is you don't see any of the murders mm-hmm. happen. You just see the remnants of the murders, but they get to have blood. They get to show us dead bodies. Um, there's some, like, unnecessary gore, even. Like, there's a scene where fucking Laurie just, like, leaves the room to go talk to the housekeeper and then just no, comes... No, she faints right. seeing one of the dead doctors. That's right, and he brings her back to her room, but he leaves the scene. And when he comes back, he has scratches all over his face, and you just know it's because he tried to put the moves on her, and she defended herself. But it's like, that's okay, that's a bit disturbing and alarming, but it's some, like, extra story, unnecessary blood that, like, also, like, is an interesting 
character thing. Like, Lori's terrible. Okay. Yeah, yeah. But, like, they're putting effort into developing all the characters and giving all the characters attributes so you know who they are. They aren't just, like, an interchangeable parade of cardboard figures. And in addition to that, the movie knows to kill them, which makes it, like, even better. Like, I, I would prefer <laughs> that when we had cardboard characters, we were killing them, but developed characters? Like, I'm not saying these characters are three-dimensional, but they are at least two-dimensional. Yes. And that is fucking something. Yeah, I I think it's interesting how, you know, we mention the film Condemned to Live in the opening because, like, the actor who plays Kurt is the lead in that movie. Mm -hmm. Because there were times where in this film I, I was reminded of it because Condemned to Live, we kind of mentioned, like, they're trying to do some neat lighting cinematography tricks of, like, as soon as the light goes out, like, this right. camera goes out, he turns. Right. Um, they just didn't know how to light something darkly. Yes. Um, and they were doing the same kind of thing of, like, the script having a lot of, like, verbosity. Yeah, everyone in that movie talked like they were from an 18th century novel. And here people do too. But somehow, it's good here? Well, because here, <laughs> I feel like the thing that makes it work, it's crazy, but your mind accepts it, is because everyone in here is a stereotype. Yeah. Who talks like they're stereotyped. Right? That's why I said, like, it's like an episode of The Simpsons. So it's like, you accept that the housekeeper talks like a weird gothic horror character because that's what she is. But you also accept that, like, the hick sheriff talks like he does because that's what he is. And you accept that, like, the sassy maid talks like she does because that's what she is. Even though it's super weird to be in a movie where everyone's basically speaking different dialects of English at each other. <laughs> the movie is also moving at such a breakneck speed that you don't really notice when the plot kind of crumbles at the end. Yeah, like, this story, the story makes no sense. Yeah. Like, it might make the least sense out of anything we've ever watched. Um, the, the parts that do make sense are the parts that are just cliches from other movies yeah. that have been brought in. Um, but it, it's like, it's to the point where, like, you don't really care that yeah, the yeah. plot is you, falling you, apart? You've been taken on such a wild ride by this point that it does not matter. Yeah, it's it's a roller coaster ride from start to finish, but it's so fast and enjoyable that you don't realize until the end that it's kind of held together with glue. Yeah, exactly. This is a Just this like is spit and gumption. This is an action park ride, right? Yeah. Like that's what this <laughs> is. Um the thing that I found shocking about the ending, mm. which is utterly insane by the way. Uh there are two things that are crazy about the ending. One of them I understand, the other I do not. Okay. So there is no reason for Margaret to burn down the house. Like, that is no... Because she's crazy! No, 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 no. But, okay, yes. Yes. And she's from Jane Eyre. Yes. Well, that's it, right? The house burns down at the end because that's what happens to gothic mansions. They collapse and take everyone with them, right? But I'm talking about, like, if we separate from narrative tropes for a bit. Okay. There's no rational reason for that to happen. And, like, Margaret is not bad. Margaret is a victim. Margaret never did anything wrong. Like, there's no reason for Margaret to have to die. Um, it actually was really upsetting to me that, like, Margaret is the most probably innocent character in the movie. She's a total victim. Everyone in this movie treats her like crap and walks all over her and mm -hmm. gaslights her the entire movie. And her reward at the end is to fucking burn to death. Because who gives a shit? And that was actually very upsetting to me. Um, because I just really... 
didn't like that treatment of a woman with mental illness. Humanity has done a garbage job of uh, treating the mentally ill through the vast majority of history. Uh, and I don't like reminders. Fair. On the other hand, you like I think there's a way to read it as her finally taking action and agency. Oh yeah, for sure. I, I would agree with that. I just think that she didn't deserve this ending. Oh, of course not. Um, but I will agree that the reason it happens is because it has to, because that's what is supposed to happen in the trope, right? Um, I do question, like, did Bella Lugosi deserve to die? Because, like... He's just an old butler. Well, like, it's weird, because he is definitely, like, um... Doing, like, not kosher things yeah, he's, with Millie. He, he's a collaborator, right? Like, yeah. Like, he is um, assisting in this stuff by keeping everybody quiet and making sure that, like, nobody comes poking around in the wrong place. But he doesn't quite seem like he... Like, he always seems, like, genuinely shocked and horrified when people are getting murdered all around him. He's never the one doing any of this. Anyways, the point is, the house burns up. The other thing that's crazy about the movie, the th- part that I don't understand that is wild and shocking to me is to see an American movie that actually turns to like magic occultism as the actual explanation for the story because the standard like modus operandi of American movies so far nine times out of ten is to start with like yes this is all happening because of magic and then explain to you how it was actually done with smoke and mirrors at the end right the scooby-doo thing this is like reverse scooby-doo where they're like did he have robot legs and it's like no he had magically summoned legs that were also like wolf oh yeah i totally forgot about that they're they're like they literally they're like the prosthetics from wolfman yeah just reused for no reason and that part is not explained at all and i will just say that some of the biggest American horror movies that we've seen and cataloged on the list have been supernatural. We yes. got Dracula. Mm-hmm. We got Wolfman. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I, I can understand why they went with the occult thing, but it is odd. The, the thing that's shocking about it is, like, you're totally right. The American horror movies that are good and that were popular and that we remember are the ones that, like, openly embrace the occult. Like, the the most successful and memorable American horror movies have been the ones that embrace occultism, but the vast majority of them have not. That's mm-hmm. the more overriding trend, especially... B-movies. With the B-movies. That's overall my reaction to this movie, is that it's a B-horror movie that is willing to do all the stuff that B-horror movies usually kind of shy away from, because B-horror tends to, like play it very safe um, because it's just designed to be cheap programming filler. We don't want to, you know, ruffle any feathers or anything, right? And it's like this film with its, you know, cast and crew of has-beens was like so far beneath the studio's notice that the people making it just never got the memo that horror movies aren't supposed to have teeth Mm -hmm. and just like made this movie. Like, there's no... I'm sorry. There is no way a studio executive saw a print of this movie before it went out. Like, nobody fucking, like, like you know, someone was, they passed it to Joseph Breen, and he was like, man, I'm just Not really... Not another one of these. I, yeah, I'm, I, listen, they're like, all the same. It's like after five on a Friday. Yeah, like, listen, man, I got... Before a long weekend. I got church to go to, to on lake. Sunday. Um, <laughs> like... 
Yeah, like people. And yeah, no one, no one paid any no attention, one paid to, any this attention movie, to this movie, except for maybe Alfred Hitchcock, because after like that comment you quoted from him about like what was it again? Uh, that the movie was surprisingly quick and efficient, or he he was praising the director because the production was short and economic. I after seeing it. That might actually be a compliment, given how much yeah, stuff so, they shoved in there. So I want to talk about that, because a little earlier I was talking about how like there was stuff in this movie that I found like surprisingly modern. Yeah. So speaking of modern, here's a movie that kills off its apparent female protagonist as a surprise in the first act, <laughs> two decades before Psycho. So, you know, and we know for a fact that Hitchcock saw and liked this movie. Yep, yep, yep. Because, like, Millie seems like she's the hero yeah. at the start of the movie. Like, she the seems like... where we were like, do we need to talk about the actress? Yeah, and then I looked up the actress and she was at the bottom of the cast list and the actress didn't have a Wikipedia page. And it was like, what the fuck? And, like, she is presented like she has way more personality than a random person getting killed in a horror movie usually does, right? And it's like, yeah, and then she's dead, and that's the inciting incident. So, like, I'm just putting that out there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't even think about that. Oh, this... The the one... One. The only thing that would keep me from watching this movie again is its isms. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah. The, like... <sighs> As a white person, I feel bad saying this, but its racism is fairly mild. Yeah, like, honestly, it's just, we've you know, become a... we got, like, um, we have a guy in brown face being a mystical foreigner, but that's kind of, as, and he's also, like, hounded by the police a little bit. The other thing is, like, by this point, that's par for the course. Like, there's a, there's an element of this where, like, we've become a little inoculated to it because they, it's, Fair. it's not abnormal for these movies. I really felt like the sexism was above and beyond, even though it's yeah. not like a main part of the story. Like to, to try and explain what I mean to you, listener, like nobody in this movie is really going out of their way to be sexist. It's just that every woman is treated like an idiot. Yeah. Like the gaslighting, the like paternalistic, like misogyny, mm-hmm. um, the chauvinism, the yeah. Harper leaves the room where all the guys are. Cause she's like going up to get ready for dinner and, like, both Lori and Baldwin watch her go, and Kurt says something like, he doesn't say this, but the vibe is akin to, she's got a great figure, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah. Like, I and forget what he says. There's, there's a whole, you can get the entire spectrum of, like, misogyny in this movie, right? Yeah. Like, on one extreme, we have Lori, who's just, like, literally spends the entire movie leering at people and, like... Leering at women. Right. And, like, his whole thing where he's going off and, like, just sexually assaulting people whenever he has a chance, it's, like, to, like, a wimpy going after hamburgers degree. It's just what he's doing if he's not doing anything else specific. Um, So you have that on one end. Then you have, like, Kurt Ingston, who kind of has this, like, I'm old and I'm white and I'm a man, and I'm rich, so I should just be able to tell you whatever the fuck I want you to do, and you should just do it. That kind of misogyny. Then you have, like, Sarah Judd's kind of weird, like, internalized misogyny of, like, I love Kurt Ingston, so for him to love me back, I'm going to, like, follow his orders, which basically means gaslighting the fuck out of everyone and yelling at them. But on the farthest end of the spectrum, we have, like, Dick Baldwin, who has the kind of 
non-malicious, unintentional... Microaggression. Microaggression of just the, the casual misogyny of like, oh, I would love you a lot more if you weren't like an intelligent professional. I like it when you're scared because then that means I get to protect you. I wish you were like a dumb, quivering leaf more often. Yeah. It's just, it's a lot sometimes. Like, the movie's script is old-fashioned. This writer is old-fashioned. I mean, I don't get the sense that Charles Upson Young likes women, basically, very much. Or at least has a high opinion. Yeah. And then, like, if that wasn't enough to, like, make me second-guess watching this movie again, despite, you know, the enjoyable parts of it, the ableism Mm -hmm. was just... Like, a little overbearing. And like like you said, Ben, it's a horror movie. And forever. Like, <laughs> we've been watching every horror movie ever made in chronological order. I can confidently say that a horror movie using mental health or physical deformities as a way to describe someone as horrific, mm-hmm. it's just part of part for the course a little bit. It's part of the genre. Like, literally, they all do it, right? Like, it's something that you have to basically, like, come to terms with on your own and figure out how you're going to filter that into yourself and, you know, treat each movie's handling of it on a case-by-case basis. But, like, at the end of the day, you know, um, if you're, you know, especially once we get to the 80s slasher movies, like, where the killers in those are probably both mentally and physically, um, you know, deformed in some way. Like, either you're, like, you're a serial killer. You're not sane. And you usually, like, are a big monster because a huge part of the basic building blocks of these movies is, you know, the scene where we reveal what the monster looks like, especially ever since Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. Right? Every movie with, like, a weirdo monster has been trying to capture that Phantom of the Opera, everyone faints reveal ever since 1925. And so it's just baked in. You know, I don't mind the stuff about Kurt and the whole story being like him magicking up some arms to go get revenge. I mean, you know, I'm a Spider-Man fan. Kurt Connors drinks a serum to get his arm back and becomes the lizard. Like, fine, it's a thing. Um, The thing that does make me uncomfortable is just some of the language that's used around him. To be fair, like... A lot of this has to do with euphemism creep, Mm -hmm. where language that was once acceptable becomes less acceptable over time because the group it refers to is always marginalized, right? So the only way that the language around them can not be a slur is if the group stops being marginalized, because even the polite term for them will eventually get the connotations of the slur just because of the way the group is looked down upon. So specifically, Kurt is like constantly called a cripple, And, like, that word is constantly used. And that's kind of, like, an uncomfortable word that people don't really like anymore just because it has this negative connotation of, like, being a useless hunk of junk, basically, Mm -hmm. um, that isn't really fair to people. I mean, Kurt's not useless. He can magic him up some arms (laughs) and legs and go get revenge. And he's not even useless before the magic. No, because he's got, like, fancy, like, full metal alchemist Like, like, robot arms, yeah. So that's uncomfortable, But honestly, it's the treatment of Margaret that I found far more upsetting, primarily because she isn't rescued, because the movie doesn't really seem to care. Like, the plot of the movie, in the broadest of strokes, is 
This woman summons a psychiatrist because she's worried she's going mad. That's the inciting incident. And that's not really ever dealt with. That's an excuse to get into this wacky-ass murder mystery. Um, And that woman just dies because, fuck it, the movie's over. Yeah, I felt like her mental health demonstrations of mania, the repercussions of an on an individual of gaslighting, all of that was just plot devices. It was all an excuse to delay revealing what the fuck is going on, right? Because the movie spends a really long time trying to like keep you from really understanding what's happening, even though it's super obvious. So, because all the movie has to do for everyone to get what's going on is for Harper to just talk to Margaret and Margaret to be like, yep, I saw my brother walking around killing people. That's why I'm doubting my sanity. Like, that's all it is. It takes 30 seconds. So that's why, like, any time Margaret and Harper get together, like, immediately 10 million characters bust in to get them apart. And, you know, it's just it's just contrivances. And even once they finally talk to her, we have to go have a scene at that point to go see Ingston and prove her wrong because there's 10 minutes left in the movie. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. So, like... And the movie makes it really unclear if, like, Margaret actually has mental health issues or if she's just been gaslit so much into thinking she does because that's the party line around the Ingston family. Margaret's crazy, right? But like there's nothing really to Margaret being crazy other than the fact that she's locked up in her room 24-7 and is being told she's crazy by everyone, which, you know, that'll have a pretty detrimental effect on your mental health. Definitely. Like she she does show signs of mania, um, even just in the opening scene, mm-hmm. um, there's that strange part where she's walking with Sarah and tells Harper to get into her servant's uniform. Yeah, as if she suddenly doesn't recognize her and stuff. That's what I mean where, like, the film is unclear, right? Yeah. Because there's other scenes where, like, you know, people are gaslighting her, telling her she's crazy, and she's like, no, I'm not, and she seems kind of on the level. And it's just, <sighs> there are times where I'm not sure if she's faking it just to survive in the house. Yeah. At the very least, if not faking it, it would be a completely reasonable response if you keep seeing blood spots everywhere and someone is not answering your questions about them. Yeah, I think, like, there's a big element of Margaret that's, you know, buying into, if everyone says I'm crazy, I guess I'm crazy. Yeah. Right? But I also think there's an element of, like, if everyone is abusing you and the only way they stop abusing you is if you agree with them that you're crazy, then, like, the safest thing to do is to act crazy. Right? Yep. Like, it's just, there's a lot going on with Margaret that I was very upset with the film, primarily just because the movie didn't care. Yeah, like, as you said, she's a caricature of Mad Woman in the Attic from Jane Eyre. Yeah, yeah. But, like, zooming out from all that... Sure. I don't know, man. Like, this is my thing with this movie. Like, I don't know if this movie's good or bad, because it was way better shot and way better directed uh, than I had the expectations for. You can tell it's cheap, but, like, it really tries not to lean into being cheap. Mm-hmm. You know, I can really see why this director is known as the guy who made something out of nothing, right? Yeah. Because, like, so many of these Poverty Row movies, it's just like, well, we've got $10. Set the camera up on a tripod, put it far enough away from the actors that we can see all of them in one shot, set up a mic, run the take, and really only do a second take if someone, like, trips. <laughs> like, you know... And, and sometimes not even then. And this movie's trying to, like, make a real movie. It's doing camera moves, and it's having creative ideas. 
and I really love that about it. Yeah, I think about this movie in comparison to earlier B-movies that were like trying to be horror, but really just rip-offs of Old Dark House and Cat in the Canary, and were terrible. The best one, I think, to compare Night Monster to is The Monster Walks. Huh. Remember when we watched that movie and I was convinced that the um, paralyzed, like, dad or whatever... Was going to be the killer, and then it turned out... Because it's called The Monster Walks, but it just turns out to be, like, an ape. Yeah, it's just the gorilla the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Like, think about that (laughs) compared to this. Like, yeah. I kept thinking of um, House of Mystery just because of, like, the patriarch who invites everyone to the house to kill them. Yeah. I was also thinking of Black Cat a lot. Mm -hmm. Um due to, like, the fact that it's the exact same house. Um, But also, like, both of them kind of pushed the limit a bit on, like, the violence and stuff, but this one dropped the comic relief. Yeah. Right? And the effect of that was... Huge. Great. Um, You know, this movie has gothic tropes. It's got old dark house cliches. Uh, It's got atrocious hack 1940s slang dialogue it's got a no-nonsense crotchety old man cop um (laughs) it's got the exact same twist ending as dr x like this movie's got kind of everything uh in it um so it makes it a little sad just to see how far lionel atwell and bella lugosi have fallen yeah if this was like a year or two earlier Bella Lugosi would have been Singh. Like, yeah. Singh is so obviously the Lugosi role. He's a weird foreigner with hypnotism powers. That's Lugosi's whole shtick. And we've seen Lugosi play um, Indian characters with turbans before. It's so obviously supposed to be his part. And instead they're like, no, you get to be the butler. Which, he, there's, he brings nothing to it. Honestly, like, he doesn't bring... There's no reason for Lugosi to be the butler. The butler is a nothing. You would only, if anyone else was playing the butler in this movie, you wouldn't even notice the butler in this movie. I will say, during the whole scene where Singh is, like, Mm -hmm. transmuting Mm -hmm. the skeleton into existence and doing, like, mystic things, sometimes the camera cuts to Bella the butler, and, like, the expressions he has are just, like, Bella's like, he's doing it wrong. There's some really good expressions on his face all through this movie like i feel like bella wasn't really like taking this movie very seriously so there are some expressions on his face throughout the movie where he is just like this is stupid like where someone's explaining something in exposition and he's just like in the background a little bit with this expression on his face that's just like this is this is very dumb yeah um at will you know two years earlier he would have been kurt Angston. mm-hmm um, as it is, like, the scientist he plays, who's the first to die, is very recognizably on a Lionel Atwill scientist, given <laughs> that he's prone to ranting about how amazing he is at the slightest provocation. <laughs> Modern science! <laughs> this movie is maddening and amazing in equal measure. Uh, you, the thing I noticed, you know, as frustrating it, as it was for how stupid everyone in this movie is, like that they couldn't figure out the most obvious stuff. As I was screaming at this cast of idiots, you know, don't do that, why are you doing this? As they were killed off one at a time. He was actually screaming, listener. I thought to myself, oh, is this the first modern horror movie? Oh, like the the trouble of like, don't go in there. What's the defining factor of a modern horror movie if not a large cast of idiots who all make terrible decisions as like a mysterious killer takes them out one at a time. 
Yeah. That's a modern horror movie. And, like, you know, this movie's made entirely of old cliches, but something about the way that they are put together in this specific way, um, specifically with the way the filmmaking is done, not really the writing, Mm -hmm. just make this feel sort of like, you know, the missing link between the bat and, like... Jason. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I would just, like, add the caveat of, like, maybe not so much modern horror movie, but slasher. Yeah, I mean... I'm not going to call this the first slasher if only because, like, there's a lot of other boxes you have to check off to count as a slasher. And also the argument around what was the first slasher is a whole ball of wax that I don't (laughs) really feel like getting to until at least we get to the 1960s. Sure. But I will definitely say this movie feels the most like that out of any movie we've seen up to that. I mean, we've seen some movies that have those elements, but this really feels like that. Mm-hmm. But because we're still in the mansion with the fog and the creaky doors and the um, gothic elements, it's this weird, like, foot in one world, foot in the other kind of thing. Let's move on to ranking. Yes, please. Okay, Sarah, so as I keep saying, I have no idea if this movie's good or not. Because of that, I have a very large range. Tell okay. me about your range, maybe, and we'll see if it helps. Okay. My range is also a little larger than what I usually do, and I'm also quite flexible with it. <laughs> yeah, um, same here. Because I, I don't know where to rank this. Yeah. Um, when I was looking at the list, I started with The Ghost of Frankenstein. Right, because this has the exact same musical score. Yes. <laughs> Ghost of Frankenstein's at 43. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of went up from there. And then I was looking at White Zombie at number 33 because they both have like similar music and sound effects cues. <laughs> oh, you mean in terms of like the skill of their use? Just plopping it down. Yeah. Like I think skill of their use, I think like. Skill of the technician. Yeah. Like. In terms of what Night Monster is trying to do, in particular the sound effects, I think it's trying to do something. I think it's also trying to do something with the music because it always crescendos right as we're zooming in on a death. Yes. Or like on a crumpled hand. Yeah. And then it goes to silence as a dramatic thing, but that... They don't pull it off is the problem. Yeah. It's a little laughable the first time. Yeah. Anyways, um, so my range at this point is 33 to 43. But like I said, I I have no idea, dude. I was even looking at The Invisible Ghost at 34, because that was also a very surprising... That's monogram pictures, right? So it was another surprising B-movie hit that also had a lot of gothic themes. Yeah, the thing that divides me on this movie is um, it's nonsense garbage, but it has like so much more bite to it and so much more like clear like thought and effort put into it than so many movies we've seen lately. So, your range is partly inside mine and a bit lower than mine. Okay. So, I first started looking around the area of Dr. X. Mm. Because it has the same basic twist as this one, where, like, oh, it could never be the guy in the wheelchair. And then in, like, Dr. X, it's because of synthetic flesh. And in this one, it's because of transmuted matter through the power of the mind or whatever. 
I figured this was definitely better than Murders in the Room Org, um, because it doesn't have comic relief. Yes. So I wasn't sure if it was better than Dr. X, so my floor is number 40. I worked my way up, and I thought, what do I know is definitely better than this? Because, like, man, there were moments in this movie that were good. There was stuff in this movie where I was like, this is how you make a horror movie. This is how a horror movie's supposed to look. You know, I joked about it being Bronson Canyon, but, like, even just going out on a location with the water and, like, pumping in the fog and having the guy walk through it instead of, like, keeping us on a soundstage the whole time. Like, just added something, I feel, for me. Yeah, I Um, would agree. You know, and the movie just had this bite that I wasn't expecting. Um, So I decided that, again... I don't really know what I'm doing here, but I definitely knew I couldn't, in any good conscience, put this movie higher than Vampyr. Because, mm-hmm. um, like, Vampyr's definitely better than this. And, you know, above that you start getting into Cat in the Canary and Phantom of the Opera and just some movies that are, like, real stone-cold classics. And, like, this movie was a surprise hidden gem, but I don't know if it's stone-cold classic. You know what I mean? <laughs> so that's kind of my range. Uh, 21 through to... Uh, 40. Um, so Oof. your range is kind of, yeah, like I have like a 20 movie range. Your movie's kind of inside mine. So let's start maybe at like the top-ish of your range there. Um, I liked this better than Dr. Renault's Secret. I think the main difference in my reaction between the two is while I acknowledge that Dr. Renault's Secret was like way more well-made than we were expecting... Everything, like, I could predict everything that happens in that movie with, like, a stopwatch. Yeah. Like, whereas this movie had me constantly going, like, what the fuck is going (laughs) on? Um, So that kind of made it a little special to me. I agree with this method of what we're doing here. I guess my question is, how do you feel feel about Night Monster compared to things like Freaks or The Black Room or even... Fall of the House of Usher. Well, Usher's an interesting case because that's, like, your archetypal, like, gothic gothic house. The house collapses at the end because the house's decay was a symbol for our family's decay, right? Yeah. Like, the movie The Fall of the House of Usher is very clearly a work of cinematic art by, like, an important cinematic artist. And it's (laughs) also... You don't need to add these caveats to put a B-movie above it. It's fine. It also... Fall of the House of Usher is based on, like, a, a classic archetypal work of the genre that establishes a lot of the tropes we're working with. On the other hand, Night Monster's doing a lot more. Shit's happening. Like, to use a food analogy, Fall of the House of Usher is just, like, two pieces of bread and some butter on them. And you're like, I just invented, like, a sandwich by putting those two pieces of bread and butter together. And you're like, wow, amazing. And then Night Monster's like, right, but what if you put, like, meat and lettuce and tomato and sauces and spices and, you know, all kinds of shit in that sandwich? Wouldn't it taste good? Um, So that's kind of my feel on that. Okay. Um, So what about Freaks and the Black Room? See, this is tough because the Black Room was pretty good. Yeah. And see, if we can get above the Black Room and Freaks, this is going above the ghoul. At 25. This is, okay, here's my my argument here, is like, 
the Black Room was very good, but the other thing we talked about in Black Room was like, we enjoyed it, but it was definitely predictable. But we talked about that predictability being enjoyable, that it was like seeing all the pieces of a puzzle come together. You know what the result is going to be. You have the picture on the box, but it's still, still satisfying to put all the parts together. Again, you can contrast that with this movie, where we had all the parts. Like, we knew what all the parts were. We didn't know what they were going to make when you put like, them together. It's like a puzzle of, like, an Escher drawing. Right. So, I don't know. Against Freaks, it's like, I'm not sure if anything in Night Monster really approaches the climax of Freaks in terms of power. But I also know that the climax is really all there is to Freaks. End mm -hmm. of the day... So that's kind of tough. The ghoul is such a weird thing on this list. because <laughs> yeah, so like, anything we can do to push it down, you know? Well, it's just like somehow it ended up above Freaks. And that is really weird and breaks the list in some ways for me because then you have movies above ghoul like Man They Could Not Hang and Devil Commands that I, I'm not sure are better than Freaks at the end of the day <laughs> um, but are above the ghoul because that's where they belong. I mean, part of the fact of the matter is, is that, like, the problem with this discussion sometimes is that as much, like, Freaks really is where it is on the list because it's not really a horror movie for so much of it. Yeah. And it just becomes it at the end. But the reason why it stands out is because it's Freaks. Like, Freaks is a movie you don't forget. That's why it's still remembered here in 2018, despite the fact that it was a massive flop, right? And so we have this situation where you have movies like The Devil Commands or The Man They Could Not Hang that are probably technically better horror movies, which is why they are higher on the list. But, you know, here we are. We're more episodes removed from Freaks than we are from those Karloff Columbia movies. And I can remember Freaks a lot clearer in my mind than any of those Karloff Columbia movies. You can see how I ended up talking myself so high as Vampire and then going, wait, no, no, <laughs> stop, no. You know what I mean? yeah. You know, um, now that I'm thinking about it again, I don't know if I can go as high as The Ghoul. Really? Okay. And, and here's why. I, I'm thinking again about The Black Room. And I just gave Night Monster kind of a lot of praise for being unpredictable and The Black Room from, you know, saying it was, it was kind of predictable. On the other hand, like, as a writer, The Black Room is, like... Very well-crafted. It's well. It's so satisfying because every piece fits. That's actually really hard to do. I have a really hard time with that in my writing. I want to do that, but I'm always afraid that I've left like weird, niggly, loose ends everywhere um, that I don't know how they fit or that I forgot about something. I'll never forget the fact that one of the first um, murder mystery stories I wrote when I was like a young teen... Um, I killed a character off on, like, page three and then forgot I'd killed him and had him come back, like, three <laughs> chapters later. Zombie! Um, the Black Room has that writing craft. Night Monster's unpredictability kind of comes from the fact that the script is bad, probably, <laughs> and is just, th like, throwing a bunch of nonsense together. The quality of Night Monster comes from what the filmmakers did with the script they had, not from that script. And so because of that, I'm kind of leaning to above Fall of the House of Usher, but below Black Room for the reasons I outlined earlier about this versus Usher. I can get behind that. Okay, let's do that then. I mean, heck, that cracks Night Monster into the top 30, which is a damn respectable place for a movie I had never heard of before doing this show. Yeah. So Night Monster, 
enters the list at number 29 from 1942, directed by Ford Beeb. Beeb. Yes. Beebe. Yes. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes that we've mentioned today, as well as an appeals box where you can submit appeals for this or any other ranking. If you feel like Night Monster should go higher or, higher lower. or lower, if you want to contest where the ghoul is, <laughs> drop us a line on Tumblr. You can also email us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. As we get further along in watching all of these horror movies, the odds are becoming greater and greater that some are slipping through the cracks of my research. If you feel like we've missed or skipped some sort of hidden classic or favorite, please get in touch with us uh, through all the methods Sarah outlined above as well uh, to suggest those movies to us. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play. You can help the show out by leaving ratings and reviews and comments on all of those sites and wherever else you get the podcast through. I really like getting comments. Uh, we have only gotten one on our SoundCloud the whole time we've had the show. Um, another feedback th- is really nice. We like feedback. You can also help the show out by sharing it on social media, whether that's on the worst website, Twitter, the second worst website, Facebook, or the third worst website, Tumblr. Um, all of those places are places you can share the show, and we would appreciate it. Um, you could also just tell a friend about us IRL. Um, it's kind of the off-season for us. Halloween's not for a very long time. So the more people who are listening to the show now uh, means a lot to us. I will say that a Canadian literature, dead of winter, middle of winter... Yeah, this is, is when like, you die. Yeah, this is the bleakest time of the year. Same thing in Russian literature, but like... Russian literature is too long. Canadian literature at least knows when to cut it off, you well, know? So, like, this is, like, kind of still our time. You say that, like, the dead of winter is the bleakest time, but, like, the thing to remember in Russian literature is there are no non-bleak times. Yeah. Another thing that you can do that would mean a lot to us is by heading over to patreon.com slash screamscene. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month, uh, $1 patrons will get thanked on the show. The next level above that is $5 patrons who get uh, bonus audio uh, every week from deleted portions of past episodes. And the next level above that are $10 patrons who receive access to exclusive horror short stories that I've written. Ben's gotten way better at writing these horror fictions since he was a teen, <laughs> killed off a character on page three and brought them back later. Though um, so you should post that. No. Um, <laughs> the cool thing I think about our Patreon is that none of the content is timed. Once you sign up, you have access to everything that came before. Um, so that includes an EP's worth of electronic Halloween music that Sarah made in October. Um, that includes a short story I wrote about Frankenstein's monster meeting Dracula. Um, the literary versions of both characters. Um, there's just a lot of neat stuff there. And uh, we hope you'll check it out and uh, give it a spin for at least a month or two. Um, <laughs> Patreon.com slash Podcast. So what are we watching next week? Next week, Sarah, we are with Universal Pictures with The Mummy's Tomb. Hmm. 
Mm. It's the third Mummy movie. Um, Mummy movie. Or I guess like second, if you consider The Mummy's Hand kind of a reboot, because The Mummy's Tomb is in fact a sequel to The Mummy's Hand rather directly. Okay. It stars Lon Chaney Jr. as Karis the Mummy this time. Oh, buddy. Chasing the father's dream. Yeah. Ooh. Doing those four-hour makeup sessions with Jack Pierce that he doesn't like. <laughs> well, we will see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.